Special thanks to our promotional partners at the American Philatelic Society. The APS is the largest stamp collecting organization in the world, supporting collectors of any level worldwide. For more information about membership and APS services, visit stamps.org. I'm Charles Epting from H.R. Harmer in New York City. And I'm Michael Cortese of Noble Spirit in Pittsfield, New Hampshire. And this is Conversations with Philatelists. Now, we're going to be talking to Simon Martin Redman, who I've been lucky enough to meet at a couple of uh, UK shows. He is a fellow of the Royal. He's a very accomplished uh, exhibitor, uh, author, collector. Uh, he is Mr. Um, – I'm going to call him Mr. Sarawak because okay. that's how I've always uh, learned to pronounce the name of, of the British yeah. colony. But I was listening to one of his talks yesterday, and people were calling it Sarawak. Okay. So I think we should ask him up front uh, mm-hmm. how to pronounce uh, the name of the uh, colony that he collects because I'm showing my – American ignorance here, uh, but 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 this this um, it, it's uh, it, it's in Southeast Asia. It's a part of Malaysia, I believe, mm-hmm. and and I I know, I know their stamps very well, and I'm sure you know their stamps. Yeah, I have, a, I have a sense this is one of those uh, you know bits of the Commonwealth that we see the stamps all the time, mm-hmm. probably mint more often than not, mm-hmm. uh, without knowing much about the history of this this part of the globe so i i think this is a great opportunity not only to learn a bit more about uh simon's own personal history within philately but also to learn a bit more about again this this colony that we see stamps from all the time um but is is obsolete is is kind of a dead country and uh Mm -hmm. yeah i I think it'll be a good learning opportunity for for me uh at least me maybe you too (laughs) Um, yeah. uh, to, to learn more about that as well as his other collecting areas. So I'm, I'm, I'm really excited for this one. Uh, again, uh, this is, um, this is just, a an incredibly accomplished collector and, and someone yeah. who I think, uh, and, and, and just, you know, watching, re- rewatching his talk to the Royal Philatelic Society, uh, a great speaker as well. So I'm, I'm looking forward to this one. This is one where I hope I can just sort of sit back and, and relax and, and learn something and enjoy. I, these are my yeah. favorites. Yeah, what a person to talk to uh, about this topic because in addition to, to knowing it so well, he, he puts together these enormous exhibits. Uh, yeah, he, when, you, he, when he showed at the Royal, it was over 500 pages of 588 material. 588 pages. Him, took him two years yeah. just to, to – <laughs> ma- I'm really excited to talk to him and, and learn more about that process yeah. uh, as well. Um Let's bring him on. I'm, I'm yeah. looking forward to talking to him. Absolutely, yeah. I'm looking forward to it, too, and uh, this should be a good one. All right. Hi, guys. Hi. Hello. How are you? Good. good. How, How about you? yourself? Very good. It's good to, uh, good to see you. Uh, good to see you guys, too. Um, it's been a long time. I must admit, I, I love what you're doing. Oh, thank you. We appreciate that very much. I, I, I was I was really excited when you uh, sent me a, a Twitter note that you were you were watching. That was uh, that meant a lot to us. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's good. It's good. There's there's so much happening in in the philatelic world, and I and I, I'm sure we will uh, discuss it further. But mm. uh, you know, there are so many people of your age influencing the philatelic world at the moment, which is fantastic news. We're doing our best to uh, to to do whatever we can to, yeah. you know, my, Michael and I are, are both passionate. Uh, you know, we, we do this cause it's fun for us. And, and the fact that other people follow along is, uh, is, is exciting. We, we would still be doing this even if nobody listened, cause we just enjoy getting to talk to people like yourself so much. Yeah. 
exactly. You're not alone. I mean, what I love to see is in the philatelic world. I mean, I don't know so much in America, but you know, in the auction houses around the world, you've got young people in yeah. positions of influence now. You know, you've got you guys. You've got Ricky, uh, Ricky Barrett at, at Feldman. You've got um, at Spink now. You've got Ian, Josh, and Tom. I mean, all yeah. young people. Uh, Constancia at uh, Grosvenor. Do you know Constancia, Dennis? I don't. You know, she, she, she's at uh, at Grosvenor, and then of course at Spink, you've got George, and the you know, managing director of Spink is is um, Victoria. Victoria. I've just been speaking to her. I was, I was speaking. To, I was speaking to her, and we're just watching her video. She's just done. She's just done a YouTube video with George about yeah. their first stamp collections. You know. I saw somebody post that this morning. I'm, I'm going to put that on later today. That, that yeah. looked like an entertaining concept. No, yeah, the, the, those look those look great. Stanley Gibbons have been putting on the, those videos for for a little while now, and and they've been doing fantastic. They're super interesting, and they're I think they're really helping the different levels of collectors, beginners, intermediate, uh, advanced. You know, it's a uh, yeah, it, all around. It, it's nice to see this kind of influence coming from. From every area of philately. I mean, you had you had uh, that fantastic uh, girl on the other day. She was absolutely brilliant. I loved her. She was a force of nature. What was her name? Uh, Casey Joe. Oh yeah, yeah, Casey Joe. Casey yeah. Joe is awesome. I think she's she's a huge part of the future of American philately. I think mm-hmm. she's. Uh, I think I think she's going to be around for for a long time. Yeah. But what I'm what I'm loving is that you know. We first met through the Club de Monte Carlo when you came over with the, with the you know the, the young philatelists, and some of the greatest collections in the world sit amongst the members of the Club de Monte Carlo. Yeah, but we're not influencers anymore. It's you guys at the influencers. You know, people like yourself and, and Casey Joe, Graham Beck, um, Suzanne at the PTS in this mm-hmm. country. You know, people not necessarily with great collections, but absolutely passionate about the hobby. Yeah, and. and and, and as I said earlier, with you know, the people in the auction houses who are passionate about the hobby, and this is so good, so yeah. good. Young people will relate to you much more than they relate to the likes of us. Yeah, and I, and I think it's so fantastic that that people like you and the and and Patrick and everybody in the Club de Monte Carlo are people that that people like us look up to, and and you're so engaged with us. And it's it's good because we can learn from people who have these enormous, uh, fantastic collections, and then kind of share with the people that we outreach to. It's great um, because uh, you get to a stage with your collection that uh, I mean I I find it very difficult to add to my collection at the moment. <laughs> so I'm always looking for new areas to collect, and you suddenly find you want a new area to collect and it's much more difficult to collect a new area than it is. I think Gordon Eubanks, my friend Gordon, mm-hmm. summed it up when he had a conversation with you guys that if there is a major item of Sarawak, or in his case, a major item of early USA, that item will find him. Yeah. You know, every dealer in the world knows if there's a major item, they'll contact us. But like Gordon with his Prexy collection... You know, some of those some of those items are so difficult to get hold of, but he has to search for them. They won't find him. Hmm. Yeah. And, and and that's what's so so fun in the hobby. I mean, I I, I you know I've always started new little little collections, um, and we'll, I'm sure we'll come on to it later. 
but trying to find that material is like being a young collector all over again. You, you, you're searching all over the place for it. Yeah, things get so specialized. It's it's no one's ever going to be able to collect everything. So, yeah, it's uh, it's tough but exciting. So so now you 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 have uh, an exceptional collection which I, I would love to talk more about. But can you sort of get us up to speed? Get us how you uh, got to this point. What were your first experiences with the hobby? How did you start collecting? And uh, what made you focus on the the area that you eventually came to? Uh, corner of the market on the corner of the market yeah <laughs> I started collecting at two I think I sent you the picture of me age two with a stamp album yeah um, I had a, a brother who was uh, nine ten years older who collected stamps my godfather was a stamp collector and the village I came in there was lots of stamp collectors and uh, and so I always collected stamps um, and I was taken to stamp shows uh, and uh, philatelic clubs from the age of about eight. Um, I still have the first cover I ever bought myself, you know, posted to myself. Um, unfortunately, my brother got killed in a car accident when he was 18. So I was, I was, it was 11 years older than me, my brother. I was nine. So I picked up quite a lot of, you know, his bits and pieces. And like all kids collected GB, because I, you know, if you live in Britain, you collect GB um, and you collect um, various sort of, you know, the usual stuff of, uh, of one country and you buy packets, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I can remember on Thursday nights going around sitting amongst two or three guys, you know, old, much older guys than me. I mean, I used to think they were ancient. They're probably younger than I am now. You know, <laughs> teach, me how to use, teach me how to use tweezers or, or you call them tongs. Don't you? Um, teach me how to use them. Teach me how to do stamp uh, hinges, et cetera. And, and so I just... I've always collected stamps. And then I joined the Navy as a young naval officer. I had three kids. And you just your hobby goes into a abeyance for a while. And when I came back to the hobby, uh, I met a guy at a stamp show who was passionate. He collected Sarawak. And uh, I went away and researched. And the, you know, the history of Sarawak is fascinating. You know, a white man goes out and kills pirates and gets given the country, which, you know, as a private citizen, he owns his own country. I mean, it's real boy, boy's own sort of, um, you know, sort of very, very exciting story historically. Hmm. But then I looked at, the, you know, Stanley Gibbons and realised from, you know, 1 to 212, SG 1 to 212, you know, on a, a, a young naval officer's salary with three kids, I could actually be complete in stamps, which was always satisfying because I could never be complete in GB as, you know, ever. And um, so I started collecting Sarawak and it became a passion, an absolute passion. Um, I collect everything Sarawak, ephemera, books, I mean, everything. How, how have you visited yourself and, and uh, what has that been like for you to, uh, uh, assuming you have, what has that been like for you to have this, uh, a more oh. personal collection, uh, connection with the, with the, the area? I have, I have. I have been to um, uh, Sarawak, and um, it was a bit like the first time I went to the Holy Land. You know, you read the Bible as a kid, you know, Sunday school, and you expect the Holy Land to be like the Bible. And what you do is you find you find, you find armed armed soldiers, you know, on the, on the Bethlehem, and it's nothing like the Bible at all. So my my um, 
knowledge of Sarawak is from 1841 to about 1870. So I was <laughs> still expecting it to be like that, you know, mud huts and stuff. Mm. Um, so I went and it was absolutely brilliant because I, I am in a WhatsApp group with the Kuching Philatelic Society, which I must get 20 WhatsApp messages a day. So I have friends <laughs> out there already. And when I went out there, um, they asked me to do a display and I'd just done Singapore 2015. And I wasn't allowed to take my collection into the country uh, because of insurance purposes. Mm. So I took a complete PDF of my collection to speak at their stamp club um, on the Sunday lunchtime or Saturday or Sunday lunchtime, 12 till 2. If I tell you that the, there was 40 or 50 of them and they were all still there, gone 6 o'clock at night. <laughs> you know, it was the most amazing. I mean, they were so interested, mm. um, so interested. And uh, they're so knowledgeable out there. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And they're constantly finding new things because there are still stuff, uh, items in country. Um, and, and that's superb. So, yeah, that, um, I love visiting. And the country itself, I mean, obviously, the rainforest is the rainforest is the rainforest. So that isn't going to change very much. Um, luckily, I didn't see too much logging because that would have distressed me. But we saw orangutans and, you know, all the things you're meant to do. But the, the city is slightly different. But I visited the old brook sites and the brook graveyard, you know, uh, cemetery, etc. And um, it was fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Yeah, it, it sounds like you put a lot of a lot of work into your exhibits. And that's probably why they, they stayed the entire time. In, in an email that you sent to us earlier, you mentioned that one of your exhibits was 588 pages. Uh, how did you... Yeah. How did you accomplish that? <laughs> it's the it's it's to me it's the highlight of every um, uh, exhibitor's uh, career is when you were asked to show to the Royal Philatelic Society mm-hmm. the one o'clock display and you're meant to put up five hundred and eighty eight pages yeah um, of quality material yeah, yeah. And it took me it took me two hours uh, two hours two years yeah. To, to just to write it up to a standard. And wow. the first write-up I had, I showed it to my wife. Luckily, we lived on a farm then and had a big barn, and I had all the display. Um, <laughs> I put it up, and, and my wife said, that looks very boring. You need to, more colour in it. So I completely changed an awful lot of the display, just because not everybody's as fascinated uh, as I am about mm-hmm. the subject. Yeah, I mean, we've also got to realise that People are looking at. And they've got. They've got to be drawn into the frame, which is perhaps something we'll come on to uh, in, in a minute. That, I mean, one of the most amazing displays I've ever seen at the Royal was also one of the most boring, and it was 588 pages of pre-stamped covers. You know, mm. fascinating material, but there wasn't a stamp to be seen. Yeah, and yeah. pre-stamped covers, pages and pages of pre-stamped covers, are, are difficult just to you know, get your head into when you're trying to walk around display frames. I don't know if you feel the same way. No, yeah. I mean, it's it, it, we're seeing a lot more uh, smaller exhibits, things like that, that, that are easier to digest, if you will. But so 588 of something that, um, you know, is fascinating, but not really visually striking. 
is uh I'm not gonna knock stampless covers so as yeah. not to alienate any them. potential <laughs> consignment. No. No. I'm, I'm just no. joking. Yeah, no, yeah. I no, but, yeah, but, but, but when, when, when it's Charles, it's a blacklist. It's a blacklist. Pre-stamp covers are brilliant. Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean there's mm-hmm. so much for pre-stamp cover from an aesthetic standpoint. Yes, absolutely. So, w- w- what is your philosophy when when putting together, uh, you know, whether it's a, a more manageable exhibit or or the Royal One O'clock? Uh, what is your philosophy into putting together an exhibit? What are you uh, trying? How are you trying to draw people in who maybe, um, you know, can't even locate these places on a map? What is it that you're trying to convey to them? I think you have to have an exhibit that people want to look at. Mm. So when they're walking down the frames, they suddenly go, "Wow." Um, I'll give you a good example. At Monte Carlo two years ago, um, my wife, who's not, not a stamp collector, um, and uh, it's got a great eye for design. She's, she, I said to her, just walk around the exhibits and tell me which one or two exhibits you really like the best. Okay? Uh, I hasten to add, my exhibit wasn't there. It was... <laughs> <laughs> it, um, otherwise, this could have been difficult. But mm. when she came back, the one exhibit she really liked was the best exhibit in the show, which was Gordon Eubanks. Hmm. I mean, it wasn't, it, it, wasn't, um, it, it, it wasn't a competitive, like Monte Carlo wasn't competitive, it was just exhibits. And uh, Gordon's exhibit just drew her in because it's designed well, the colours are great, the material set out properly. She didn't have a clue what the material was, it just looked good. Yeah. And Carol's stuff, you know, Carol's stuff always looks amazing. Um, because she's got a she's got a different eye for it, and and I when I did the um, and we talked about this uh, Charles um, the global philatelic summit I was asked to be a keynote speaker on the aesthetics of exhibiting. I have to say it's the hardest presentation I've ever had to do in my life. Writing it up, I'm trying to write up uh, an hour's presentation on the aesthetics of exhibiting. It's like trying to pin jelly to a wall. I mean, there wasn't a hook you could really grab on. Hmm. But but it is really important that your your exhibit has to draw people in. And that's why I will probably never exhibit thematically. Because I find there's too much stuff on one page. You know, hmm. I, I like I like white space. I think white space is really important. Uh, and judges don't always like white space, but sometimes you know, if you've got an amazing item, just that one amazing item on a page, you know, stands out very, very much. That sort of restraint is important, and knowing what not to put on a page is as important as knowing what to put on a page. And you're right, yeah. with, with topical exhibits, very often there will be stamps stuck in the corners and margins and anywhere you can conceivably fit a stamp, there's there's something. Yeah, I mean, you call them topical, yeah. I, I, I appreciate them, but I'm not drawn into them. You know, I, 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 it's very difficult to be drawn into so much. Mm. You know, um, I like exhibits, and, and I mean Gordon's Wheel of Color. Have you ever seen his Wheel of Color? I mean, it's just amazing. Uh, it, it's it's such a simple concept, um, but it works. You know, I love other people's exhibits. I mean, there's lots of great exhibits out there. Um, Jean Verroux's, his his uh, large gold exhibits are just a joy to see. He, he does a, 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 a Switzerland exhibit. 
and the really great exhibits um, do draw you in. Now, on the other side of the coin, we've talked about these these massive exhibits for for the Royal, or even a you know eight or a ten frame for an international show. But on the on the completely other side of the coin is something like the Gibbons single page exhibit competition, which you and Ian Gibson Smith, I, I hear, are the judges of. Yeah. Interesting. So can, 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 can you talk about the, the difference between, uh, you know, a multi hundred page exhibit versus a, a single page? What, what is it? What do they have in common? What are the different approaches? What, what you know, how, how do you sort of compare and contrast those two extremes? Well, you're asking me before I've seen the exhibits and uh, <laughs> someone having to shoot. Someone, uh, the, the competitors are having to show the, the, the story of an issue on one page hmm. and I can't wait to see it. Uh, I've seen one frame exhibits, which are just quite amazing. Um, to do it on one page, I can't wait to see them. And uh, they will have to use quite a lot of the space on the page as well. So uh, how we get over that dichotomy of drawing me in and and, uh, and showing it would be quite interesting. Yeah. But uh, I, I, Gibbons asked, Ian and myself, I think just because we've, we've both got large gold exhibits ourselves, but neither of us are judges, you know, in the recognised sense. Neither of us are trained to be a judge, nor um, nor you know, been on that judge's route. So we're looking at it with a completely different eye. What draws us in, what we think is an exciting exhibit. And we're not going to be prissy about, you know, um, does it meet all the rules of this, that and the other. Yeah, I was going to ask that is what what exactly is it you're going to be looking for? Is it the most aesthetically pleasing, the best storytelling? The what is a uh, what do you feel like you're going to be looking for? It's a bit like trying to describe a camel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, when you see a camel, you know it's a camel, but try describing it. And I think both Ian and I have discussed this. We think we'll know straight away which ones we're really going to like. Yeah, that makes sense. So I've always said it, Sarawak. Is that incorrect? Is that an American uh, ignorant pronunciation? <laughs> okay, the correct pronunciation is Sarawak. Sarawak. No, you don't pronounce the K. No, but that's the correct pronunciation. But if you go up to a stamp dealer mm -hmm. and say, do you have any Sarawak? They think he might have a speech impediment. <laughs> so everybody uses Sarawak. Even even people in Sarawak use Sarawak. Sarawak. Okay. Okay. That's not the only area that you collect, though. No, um, I've got to be careful here because uh, I, I, the pronunciation um, and the spelling are, are two completely different things. <laughs> I also check the Indian state of Vankana. Okay. But it's in. It's spelled Wankana. Yeah. <laughs> do, do you select places to collect based on the difficulty of pronunciation? Yeah, yeah. No, there, there is there is a um, a connection. Um, I've been reliably informed by uh, Mark and Davi that I'm the only person in the world collecting Vankana. <laughs> and, and so he, uh, I, 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 oh, I could say Wankana for the British audience, which always causes a titter. <laughs> but, um, the the uh, so much so that I was meant to be showing it at Monte Carlo this year, 
because uh, India was the theme at Monte Carlo. But it's an interesting story that uh, in 1895, Perkins Bacon were asked to produce the stamp papers for Wankana. And they did produce the proofs of the stamp papers, but they just, when they needed to produce the proof, they did not have a picture of the Maharaja of Wankana. But they just printed the 1895 issue for Sarawak. So they had a picture of a Raja, the Raja of Sarawak, but they didn't have a picture of the Maharaja of India, of, of Vankana. So they put the Raja of Sarawak's head into the proofs of the Vankana stamp paper, <laughs> which can you imagine nowadays if they did it? Because the Raja of Sarawak was a white man <laughs> and the Maharaja was an Indian. Shows you how times have changed. And uh, the great thing is, there's two of the most stunning, beautiful proofs of the early stamp paper of of uh, of Wankana with with the Raja of Sarawak's head on these proofs. I own both of them, and they're just beautiful. So as a result of that, I started collecting um, that country, and I thought Sarawak was difficult, but my God, it's even more difficult. But I've got enough for probably coming close to a five-frame display now, including masses of archival material, uh, which I've brought through India. Mm -hmm. And are you diving as deeply into um, Vankana uh, as Sarawak? Or no. is <laughs> Sarawak. Sarawak. <laughs> I might know. Um, for the simple reason is um, everything is written in Gujarati, mm -hmm. and it's old Gujarati as well. Yeah. So there's hardly anybody read that stuff yeah um i could never do a competitive exhibit because they're revenue stamps and there is no revenue book in existence so you have i couldn't say which rate was for what or what rate and even reading the documents if i could um there wouldn't be so if i if i ever exhibit it it'll be in an open class or just to do it like in monte carlo as a bit of fun i'll never show it competitively that, that's got to be frustrating for a lot of people who, who are so interested in, in areas like that where there's no literature for uh, to, to compete the, the, their, their exhibits. Yeah. Um, it was suggested to me, heaven forbid that I would ever do it, but it was suggested to me that you could make up the rates and no one would ever know. <laughs> <laughs> no judge on the planet would ever know what the real rates were, but but, but um, I, I, I couldn't do that. Uh, I'm, I'm too, too much of an honest individual to do it. But it's quite an interesting hypothesis, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's, um... It brings me on to dishonest philatelists because um, the a few uh, conversations ago, you had Dieter on, Dieter Mickelson. Mm -hmm who suggested the way of philately is perhaps sending your PDFs to the judge beforehand. Um, that, that caused alarm bells to ring with me because, you know, how would the judges ever know that the person who submits those PDFs actually has the material in their oh, possession now? Yeah. Because yeah. I've seen some amazing um, small exhibits, not, not competitive, but just from... I mean, there are people in the Far East who are very, very knowledgeable about stamps, mm -hmm. okay? And they have produced for their societies great displays of stamps, and they don't own a single stamp. They mm -hmm. basically have taken images from auction catalogues and, and 
and other people's displays that appear on, on, on the internet and have produced a display themselves with a history of the stamps and they are very, very knowledgeable. They just don't own the stamps. Hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a debate in its in in and of itself. There, I mean, that's uh, virtual exhibiting when you don't actually own any of the material that you're exhibiting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could you could you know, have sold your exhibit six months earlier and still exhibit it for an international show with your PDFs. I, hmm. I, it, there must be a way around it, but uh, but it, it, the moment he said it, my alarm bells rang. Yeah, it's it, it's it's going to be interesting to navigate the uh, direction that that philately is going online as well, and and things that not necessarily everybody has thought of, like that that scenario exactly. Um, how do how do we protect against it? I don't know. Um, we we're also going to have. I mean, exhibiting itself. Um, I agree with Dieter when he said about. Um, you know, people get put off by rows and rows and rows and rows and rows of exhibits, especially in some of the halls where the lighting is so terrible. I mean, Stockholm, it's Stockholmia, was an amazing show, probably one of the best shows I've ever been to, if not the best. Mm-hmm. But there were so many exhibits, the lighting down some of the rows was pretty, pretty difficult. And it was, it, it was a superb show. But there were so many people wanted to exhibit there that you, you just got blown away with the amount of exhibits. Yeah. I also think there's going to be a problem with insurance in the future as well, because uh, in some of the countries, customs are... Uh, I mean, I could never take my Sarawak material back to Sarawak because they could then confiscate it for me as historical artefacts. Really? So, wow. Yeah. I mean, and there are other countries like that, aren't there? Burma and places like or Myanmar. Mm. Um and so I think there's going to be a problem, and insurers are going to be putting their rates up, um, I'm sure, post post this COVID crisis. Um, and the there could be exorbitant costs of insuring your material, which you take it with you abroad. Yeah. Well, with the, the, the conversation about uh, PDF exhibiting and digital exhibiting sort of segues into a, a bigger conversation that's being had. What is your impression of, of how the hobby has transformed and and modernized and adapted during the past year uh because you know you're, you're you're on twitter um you you uh you know I, I don't know if you'll be attending we're filming this the week of virtual stamp x um but but then again there's something irreplaceable about a show like like monaco every two years or like the big international show in london next year so what is your impression of how the hobby has um has handled the the covid situation and and what do you think will uh, it'll it'll retain moving forward, and what do you think will um, you know re- return to to normal once we're all able to see each other face to face again? I, I mean, COVID's been ghastly, hmm. but it has been the, in my view, a lifesaver for the hobby of philately. Um, not just philately, but but. The whole of commerce has had to change the way it's operated because of COVID. And digitization of commerce, small firms, um, all aspects of commerce has probably gone forward 10 years in the space of a year. Yeah. And, I mean, who, no one had heard of Zoom a year ago. And here we are on a Zoom call. 
And what it's done for Philately, you know, your, your own show, you know, conversation with Philatelist, Graham Beck staff, um, you know, there's so many different um, uh, blogs, webcasts out there that the, the world of Philately has embraced it. I mean, I did a presentation for the Royal Online late December, and I think I had 178 participants from about 38 different countries. Mm. Now, if I'd have given that in London, there may have been 80 or 90 people from perhaps two or three countries. Yeah. And, you know, the Collectors Club, the, the US Postal Stationery uh, uh, Society, everybody is putting their stuff online. And it has just done wonders for the hobby. And we're now talking to people who we'd heard about, but we never we never had seen or, or heard from via Zoom calls. Yeah. But I mean, economically, because you know, you know, my background's management consultancy. Economically, um, the whole culture of the world has changed. Um, we've always been city centric. You know, the major New York, Wall Street, London. You know, the city of London. Everything has been city-centric. And as a result of this, people now be working from home more. And I think with more people working from home, the economies of smaller towns are going to increase because people will be using their smaller towns where they live. Um, just coffee shops, sandwich bars, and the big cities. Um, will people ever go back to big cities in droves? I don't know. I don't know. But for, for Latley in particular, I think it has been a lifesaver. Um, we've embraced it, and even the real old fogies have embraced it. I mean, how many Zoom calls you had where people said, "I don't know how to share a screen," or "Turn your mute button." I know people who didn't own a computer a year ago who are yeah. now uh, <laughs> Zoom proficient. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and you and you have the whole preservation of of, of talks and material as well i mean they not only are these people having these talks you you had your presentation but they're preserved online infinitely and indefinitely so the collectors club has all their talks but they they had always recorded their talks but now they have all their talks online for just people to to view and it's it's adding another level of if you're interested in the subject now the information or a presentation on that information is so much more easily accessible to you. And people now know how to do it. I mean, yeah. people now know how to share a screen and do PowerPoint and keynote presentations. Mm -hmm. And the, I, when they first started, they were very, very amateur a year ago. But now people are putting some really, really funky displays up online. Yeah. And um, they've embraced it. It's superb. And, and virtual Stampex, it was good last year. It's going to be even better this year. Yeah. Yeah, we're looking forward to it. So it, do you think once things open up again, we will keep the same kind of trajectory or the same level of online participation? Or do you think we'll find some sort of happy medium level in between? Or or what, what do you think will, where do you think we'll level out at? I think people, um, I was very pleased with your, your um, uh, call from St. Louis this weekend. Yeah. That people racing it but i would hope that people will go back to mixed you know will go back to proper meetings again yeah but they must not stop this this zoom calling 
you know, I mean, the Royal Philatelic Society, in my view, should still have at least uh, one meeting every four to six weeks on Zoom because it's an international organization, the same as the Collectors Club. And to embrace your international members, let's have let's have um, uh, Zoom meetings. Yeah. Yeah, because it, it, it then adds a level of people feel like they need to participate in the Collectors Club more or it, 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 it or the Royal Philatelic Society. It, it adds an added level of, OK, maybe I can join or maybe I should join, even though because I'm in New York or they're in London, stuff like that. It, you feel more connected. There's more of a reason to join if you can participate in the meetings rather than than not. Yeah, I, I, the fact that the Royal has members, I, I, mean, I don't know how many countries, it must be 60, 70 countries, probably even more. Um, mm. But regularly at a Royal Zoom meeting, there are participants from 35, 40, 50 countries. And I think that's absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Um, it's getting the time zones right. I mean, I was on a Zoom meeting the other night with the US uh, Postal Station Society. I think that was about three o'clock in the morning. I, 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 I literally went on and thought, I can't do this. I really can't do this. <laughs> as much as I, I want to listen to this, I really can't do this. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, going back to this thing about uh, virtual displays, I mean, it is a way forward because the hassle of taking your display now around the world with insurance is, mm-hmm. I mean, my funniest philatelic story. Can I tell you my funniest philatelic story? Yeah, please. I was in Monte Carlo. I was, I was presenting in Monte Carlo. And um, my I took my exhibit out with me. And it was only a 90-page exhibit. But but the value of that exhibit was probably the price of an average house. Okay? <laughs> and my, my insurers, um, the, the rule in my insurance was I could take it. But unless it was in the frame, it had to be with me at all time. So I could take it, put it in the frame. Once it's in the frame, okay. Out the frame, it's got to be with me all the time. And I was traveling back from Monte Carlo on a budget airline, unfortunately. I, um, the only flight I could get at the time I wanted was on EasyJet. And I have, I detest standing in line. We call it queuing. You call it standing in mm. line. So I always wait for the aircraft to, to, to you know, uh, be ready to go. And I'm always the last one on board on, on budget airlines. Um, so I went on and I carry my stamps in, you know, a rimmerware case. You know, the, you know the, uh, the the silver metal yep. luggage rimmerware. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I have a briefcase with this metal, which my daughter calls my spy case, and my exhibit <laughs> was in there. And I, and I went on board the flight, and the air stewardess, the the cabin crew, she said, "I'm sorry, sir, you can't bring that on board with you." And I said, why is that? She said, all the overhead lockers are full. And I thought, there's no way this is going in the hole. Not with the amount of value in this briefcase. And I said, I'm awfully sorry. Uh, It has to be with me. She said, well, you can't bring it on board. And and everybody's tutting because they're all waiting to go. And I said, I'm sorry that if this can't come with me, uh, we're going to have to get my luggage off and I'm going to have to catch the next flight, at which stage everybody's up in arms. Mm. And... We're having this conversation, which was obviously going nowhere, when the pilot came out of his little you know, little cabin and said, excuse me, sir, what's the problem? And I think I'd booked in seat five or six. That's all I had, row five or six. And uh, I said to the pilot, I said, I'm ever so sorry, but this case has to stay with me. Um, and if it's not, I'm going to have to catch another flight. And he said, may I ask what's in the case, sir? And my, bright, my mind immediately thought... 
if I say stamps, <laughs> the average person doesn't understand stamps. If I said stamps, I've lost my argument. So I said, unfortunately, they're documents of extreme national importance that have to be with me. And the pilot said, oh, sir, I understand. Um, how about this for a compromise? You put your briefcase in my cabin, you know, in the pilot's cabin, which is locked because, you know, they have to lock it these days. And you sit in seat one that you can keep an eye on the door. And he turned around to the people in row one and said, do you mind moving so we can get this aircraft off the, off the ground? <laughs> so I got, Claire and I got row one, which we normally book anyway, if we, you know, on a normal flight, but we, we got row one. The people got moved. The airplane took off. And as we got off the flight, you know, at the other end, my wife turned to me and said, documents of extreme national importance. <laughs> but you know, if I'd have said stamps, yeah, people, people don't understand the value of stamps. Yeah. Yeah. They I experience don't. that whenever I try and get through customs to visit the UK or wherever, they are always incredulous when I tell them I'm in the postage stamp business. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. People don't understand, do they? I mean, my, I only, I only, you know, about eight years ago, telling my you know, close friends that I was a philatelist. It was, you know, <laughs> didn't understand. I got to the stage where I just thought I'm spending so much time doing my hobby. They ought to know what I'm spending my time on. Otherwise, mm. you know, they must have thought I was doing other things. But um, no, uh, now all my friends embrace it. They understand. They're always interested in the, uh, the stories of the shows. Yeah. And I think that's what a lot of people miss out on is, is the stories because they don't understand the the reason why these items are valuable. But but if they understood the history behind them and, and the fascinating stories that they... And, and even just, yeah, the, the personal stories of going to a show. There's so many yeah. people in my life who, who don't care about stamps whatsoever. But you tell them these funny stories about Monaco or London or Stockholm or whatnot. And, and everyone can relate to that. And everyone, it, it's... Uh, uh, you know that that's something that um, yeah, even non-philatelists can can connect with. Or even that yeah, story what, just just there with the airplane. Most people don't get to experience that. Yeah. You know, I mean, just the narrative of Monte Carlo. You know, you, yeah. you tell it to your friends. You know, Prince Alba is your pre, you know your, your president, and he, he he comes to have dinner with you on the Saturday night, and you're sitting in you know, Alain de Casse's you know, three Michelin star restaurant, you know, mm-hmm. the Hotel de Paris. It's not your average stamp show, is it? Where people are sitting in front of dollar boxes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's such a um, such a massive definition for the word. It, you know, it can be yeah, dollar so many boxes. Qualify or... as flattery. Yeah, yeah. However, you know, don't get me wrong. The the dollar boxes um, at stamp shows are still where it's all at you know the, the, you got so excited about finding two or three covers last weekend you know there is much more excitement in finding something for a dollar or ten dollars that you know is worth a hundred dollars than it is buying a major piece of auction that you then got to spend 25 percent you know on cost as well um the dollar box is still more fun I'll be being in St. Louis. It was digging through boxes of stuff that um, that, that reminded me why I missed shows so much. We, you know, I mentioned earlier, right at the beginning, about the young 
your generation are now the influencers of our hobby. But if you still go to the average stamp club, um, you don't see young people. Hmm. And that's something we've got to address. We've really got to address. Yeah. I feel like our generation are, are not joiners. They'd rather observe from a distance or tweet about something or watch YouTube videos rather than, uh, you know, that, that, you know, but that's at least my perception. Cause I, I think Michael and I are in the minority of people who want to belong well, they, to the APS and go to shows and get our hands dirty with the actual physical side of the hobby. They didn't grow up with the necessity to, to participate in person. They've grown up with the with the accessibility of the internet and and the the luxury, if you will, of of being able to find anything online. They they don't understand that that so much of the hobby was based around showing up, and it's a hands on hobby. And you go to the shows and and you you it, it's tactile. So it's it's so it, it's going to be I think a little difficult to convince people to of our age and, and younger that, that this is a, a way to experience the hobby. That's, that's more exciting than just looking at things online. Yeah. I mean, I have to say that um, Gary Lowe uh, has to be congratulated for the latest edition of the American philatelist. Hmm. Um, it, the first half of that magazine should be made into a, mon a standalone monograph and be distributed to every school, every stamp club, um, because you know how to build a collection. That is yeah. probably the best edition I've ever read of the American Philatelist. Yeah, it, it's a it's necessary. It's necessary for people to to know this stuff before they get into serious collecting. And, and as they're getting into serious collecting, it's it's definitely helpful. There has to be a measure of, of you, know, you have to show aspiration that people aspire to the great collections, but the, the, the ground roots, the hobby on how to build your collection from, it's, I mean, I, I, I was blown away by that edition. Um, and of course, interviewing some great friends of mine like Carol and, and uh, it, it, it was done really, really well. Mm -hmm. um, I have I have tweeted Gary to to let him know um, how how I thought of it. Yeah, yeah. This is fantastic, Simon. Is there anything else you want to add? Any other uh, topics that you you were hoping to cover? Because I've enjoyed this very much. It, yeah, I, this has been I, great. I, I miss seeing you over in Europe, but it's been fun to to reconnect like this. No, I, it's been a great conversation because uh, you know, I appreciate that as a hobby, we've got to change. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I mean, what you've got for your, this, this uh, CWP, we, you've got something like 600 subscribers and you know, some of the editions have been looked at 1400 times, 1500 times. I mean, it's not huge numbers, but it is for our hobby. Mm. Yeah. 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 And I think Graham gets, you know, lots of people looking at his stuff, you know, and Graham Peck stuff just makes me laugh. It creases me sometimes, <laughs> but it's so good. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think we're we're beginning as a hobby. We're we're on our way there, and it's just about finding what works and what works for everybody. My my the only thing I wanted to co cover that we haven't covered is, of course, you know, the big sale in 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 July. I think it is, isn't it? In June. June. 
Yeah. What is what is your uh, what do you have a prediction? Do you have a, a take on the uh, you know? I'm sure everybody knows by now, but we're talking about the sale of the uh, one cent magenta uh, British mm-hmm. Guiana and the the inverted Jenny plate block. Yeah, I'm only glad that um, rarity is not directly correlated to price, <laughs> because because. Um, uh, you know, I have quite a few unique items in my collection, and they're worth a fraction, a mm-hmm. fraction of, of the, and that's really good for most collectors. You should um, be thankful while buying, but disappointed while selling. I suppose if they're not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean the block of the Jenny block. I mean, what is is there four or five blocks now? There's a uh, couple, yeah. Yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah, four. And the yeah. last one that sold what, five million dollars was it? It was the center line from the gross center collection. Line was the last that sold, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, my predictions are it probably won't be bought by a philatelist. Mm. It'll be bought by someone with an awful lot of money who um, who wants it as an iconic item. I mean, so far, every single person that's ever bought that item hasn't lost money. Yeah. It will be interesting to see if that uh, happens again. Absolutely. Yeah. I think the entire Philadelphia I mean, world has that. Yeah, I think the... You're in the trade. Yeah, I think the entire philatelic uh, world has their eyes on it, but I, I think that's that's right. There's a lot of rare items like this are gaining interest from people outside of the hobby. And whether or not they use them as a stepping stone to become serious collectors themselves, or they use them as, like you said, um, you know, iconic items of of rarity that they're just collecting, um, it, it is something we'll find out. But I think it will sell to someone who either is flatly adjacent or someone who's looking to buy something that that just holds significance in an area itself. Like if a rare document came on the market or a rare coin or, or anything that's, that's unique. This, this is the only plate number block. Uh, It's, it's, it has, whether or not you're a philatelist yourself, it has its, its place in American history. I only wish that the most expensive stamp in the world was prettier. <laughs> my my other thought on it that I've been I've been saying that I think is interesting is that usually there are decades between yeah. sales of iconic items. The Alexandria Blue Boy sold in 1981, and then we sold it in 2019. The Baden Error of Color, uh, the Triskelion Yellow hasn't been sold in many many years, um, and the Magenta even before the the sale in 2014 had been off the market for quite a while with, with all the intrigue of Dupont's murder. So I think it's especially interesting for an item such as this to have been off the market for only seven years. I think that sort of um, recency bias is is sort of unprecedented when we're talking about the 10 most iconic philatelic items. I, I think that uh, a seven-year turnaround is is um, much different than what we've come to expect. Mm. I, I, I hope for Stuart's sake that he realizes his uh, investment. I... I'd be surprised if he does at this moment in time, to be quite honest. I'd be surprised. I think it's been, as you say, it's it's only seven years. Yeah. 
my my exhibit my exhibit in Greece on the you know my presentation on the aesthetics of exhibiting you know it was about beauty of 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 your exhibit and my last slide was ugly can be beautiful too and I showed that stamp <laughs> <laughs> and it's beautiful because it's worth nine and a half million dollars but uh, it's not the prettiest stamp in the world yeah not quite in yeah. fact in fact now I think people will say that the back is is more valuable <laughs> than the front yeah that's an interesting point but hey um be interesting to see yeah, no, we're, we're, we're going to be talking a lot about that as uh, as the, the sale date quickly approaches. Yeah. I mean, Sotheby's are doing an awful lot in, in getting it out there. I mean, the amount of articles appearing in the marketing, um, uh, you know, they're doing their job, aren't they? Yeah, very well. It'll catch the attention yeah. of the uh, of the appropriate buyer, hopefully. Interesting. At least it gets the, the you know, Friends of mine are saying, well, if that's worth nine and a half million, have you got any unique items? My sons <laughs> and my daughter, how many unique items have you got in your collection, Dad? Are they worth nine and a half million? <laughs> no. Yeah. Well, Simon, this I think, is I think fantastic. I've got unique items that aren't worth nine and a half million cents. <laughs> I mean, it gets the people talking, though. It, get, it gets philatelists, but, but additionally, it gets non-collectors talking in, about stamps whenever items like this go on the market and they can only be good all publicity is good publicity mm. absolutely yeah this has been incredible thank you so much for for taking the time out to to meet with us and and talk to us about your collecting habits and and the exhibits and, and everything and the hobby in general and the hobby in general yeah let's hope it carries on as it's going I'm, i hope so too and uh, and i know I applaud you guys. It's uh, it's it's super what you're doing. Keep up with it. Thank you. Thank we you. We appreciate that very much. I look, I look forward to uh, I look forward to more of them. Thanks. Uh, this is this has been great. Jolly good. Well, thank you guys. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. Take care. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Cheers then. Bye. Bye. Mike, I really enjoyed that one. I, uh, Simon is is just so obviously not only a great collector, but a great spokesperson for the hobby and for yeah. the beauty of philately and the historical importance of philately. Um, just uh, really, really enjoyed that one. Yeah, absolutely. And and the fact that he was able to put together a 588 page display <laughs> exhibit on a on a country like which is what the royal expects of you. That's yeah. what's crazy. Is that this wasn't a one off thing. This is everybody who gives the one o'clock presentation at the royal has to put together that many frames yeah that's it's that's for but, but for that country it's that. standard exhibit frames of material yeah. that's um that's well two years to put together it you can tell that he really really is passionate for what he collects it, i love he that he was taken by these these stories like any 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 you know uh young boy reading these stories about you know pirates and far off lands yeah and he's just so captivated by that that's like still what he what he collects to this day i love when somebody you know decides so early what they're going to specialize in and then just takes it to its its conclusion yeah and, and you know we we've mentioned this a lot but like you said anybody could be captivated by these stories it, cheryl said it 
I feel the best, you know, we have to stop talking to collectors just themselves. We got to talk to other people because because hearing those kinds of stories are is what's going to bring people back into the hobby or not back into, but, but, but maybe back into like, uh, like Simon himself, you said he got back into it, but, but entice them in the first place to collect these things. And, you know, of course we, you know, we're not going to force anyone to collect, but, but I I feel like there's, (laughs) there's so many people who would, who would, if they, if they just knew the exciting history behind this kind of material. I, I agree completely. This episode was was really great. I enjoyed this one. Um, and I think we should do it again real soon. So so thank you to everyone for listening. As always, uh, if you're listening on, if you're watching on YouTube, you can yep. listen to us on Google, Apple, Spotify podcasts. If you're listening to us as a podcast, you can watch this on YouTube. Yep. Uh, you can visit us at flatterlypodcast.com. You can also send us an email at flatterlypodcast at gmail.com. Or He's just, Michael J. Court. I was just gonna say, or, or just tw- or just tweet, tweet, it, tweet at us. He's Michael J. Court. I'm Charles L. Epting. Yeah. Um, and this yeah. has been conversations with Flatulus. Been conversations with Flatulus. What else is there to say? It's been a good one, and and I'll talk to you real soon, Michael. Absolutely. I will. Uh, I'll see you then. Sounds good. All right. Bye. Bye.